Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Alexis, vaya mano y el remate a gol de Lacassé. 1-0 Arsenal, Lacassé. Marca el delantero francés. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. James, goodly morning to you. How was your weekend? It was good, thanks. Yeah, goodly morning to you too. Mm. The, the goodly mornings just keep on coming. Uh, yeah, all well. How about you? Yeah, all good. Nothing too strange or startling. Nothing too exciting this weekend. Just sort of stayed in and watched some old movies. Um, how old? Um, well, I watched Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. Uh, that's, that's a great movie. Nineteen ninety-five, something like that. Here's a true story. I saw that movie about whoa, six times. In you know between the time it was released and about 2002, I know I forgot it every single time. Mm. I forgot every single detail about it. I think is it the first movie where Al Pacino really starts to get on his like oh thing? Yeah, I think he really think does. So. You know, it would be like goodly morning. You know that kind of <laughs> that kind of vibe from from Al Pacino. Um, yeah, it was yeah it was good. I, I you know I felt let down by the ending, but there you go. Right. That can happen. Um, and I also watched Highlander. Oh, wow. Yeah. Back in the... That's from 1986. Something. Yeah. yeah. It's the same vintage as me. Mm. It doesn't really stand up to... Uh, to it doesn't, really? doesn't hold the test of time. No. Not really. I mean, it's That's quite absurd in places, you know, because you have Sean Connery coming in and doing his whole, I am Juan Sanchez Ramirez Lobo de la Cruz of the of Spanish court. I'm here to... <laughs> and you're going, you're not very Spanish. And of course, you have Christopher Lambert, who's a Frenchman doing a, the worst Scottish accent anybody has ever heard. And then there's a moment later in the film where he says, um, uh, the Highlander says to him, blah, 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 you Spaniard. And he goes, I'm not a Spaniard, I'm a Egyptian. And you're like, what? 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 How the fuck are you Egyptian, man? I guess that explains the accent, though. It's a perfect Egyptian accent. Perfect Egyptian, Spanish, Scottish hybrid. But the best part of it was, um, you know, the Highlander, of course, he lives forever. He's immortal. And he's, mm. he's fallen in love with this woman after he's cast out and he's fallen in love and they have a long and happy life together. And of course, you know, she gets old and he doesn't get old. But, yeah. but what they did in the, in the final scene of her life where she dies because she's just so old and decrepit, they got the actress who was the young actress, who was his young bunny bride back in the day, and they just put, an, they just put a grey wig on her. 
rather oh, than no. rather than just get why don't you get a, an a, an older lady to play the part of her dying but no they just they just put a grey wig on her and did a little <laughs> bit drew a few lines on her face to make her look old but there you go it's amazing what they can do isn't it it's amazing how they can <laughs> reproduce the age. In, in in this day and age they're sort of making De Niro younger and yeah. Pacino younger in, back then stick a wig on someone that's fine that's it they're, they're old grey hair equals old well, listen, Fun we times. all got it then. We didn't question it at the time. Um, we well, I'll have to go back and watch those films. I haven't seen them for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would I would suggest having a few drinks with Highlander because you'll need them. Um, sure. But, but there you go. Uh, so, Arsenal won again. I know. What is, what's going on here? Hmm. What's going on here? I'm deeply suspicious of the whole thing. I'll be honest with you. There's a lot going uh, on in the world this mo- the, at the moment. And, True. you know, there's a lot of it might make you think this is kind of end times. Yeah, conspiracy Ars- theories abound. But Arsenal winning three games in a row in the Premier League for the first time since February of last year. It's up there. Um, right, let's talk about it. I mean, it's a weird game because there wasn't a great deal to like about it beyond the result. No. Uh, team selection. The only thing that really raised uh, an eyebrow for me. Uh, I know what you're going to say. Are you? Do you? You are? Uh, it is. Uh, I know. I think it might have something to do with the right-back position. Correct. Correct. <laughs> At the time, uh, my eyebrow was raised in a quizzical, like... Just one. Just one. Like sure. Roger Moore. Yeah. Um, I can't do that, by the way. And I've very... No, I can't either. I look like I'm having some sort of fit, I think, yeah. when I do that. And I've got very kind of um, indistinct eyebrows anyway, so, uh, yeah. you know, it would be hard to tell even if I were. But in the cold light of day, of a Monday morning, after we've read a David Ornstein update on The Athletic about Hector Bellerin carrying a, a groin problem mm-hmm. um, that he's being nursed through, you know, he's, he's not being uh, risked. Uh, he was on the bench, of course, and he has played uh, recently, but he's he's being hampered. His recovery from his ACL injury is being hampered by this groin problem. Similar thing happening with Rob Holding, of course. Uh, so th- that explains why it was Socrates over Bellerin. Doesn't necessarily explain why Ainsley Maitland-Niles is not being used at all. It, 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 I know we have we tend to seem to have this discussion every week, but you know every week it seems more and more like there's something um, really missing uh, from Ainsley Maitland-Niles as far as Mikel Arteta is concerned. It does. And increasingly, I'm sort of of the mind that maybe, as much as I say, well, the door's always open, the door's always open for Ainsley, it feels like the door is pretty close to shut. You know, Mm. someone certainly pulled it too, as they say. And uh, I think the signing of Cedric Suarez was a big... Big moment for Ainsley Maitland Niles, and <laughs> yeah, when, when you're signing a cripple, yeah, it doesn't yeah. really augur well for you. Uh, signing a guy in a knee brace to basically be ahead of you in the queue that's not a good sign. Um, so yeah, I found that interesting. I mean, poor old Socrates, he's not a right back, is he, by any stretch of anyone's imagination, even Mikel Arteta's, but he, he tries manfully in the role. Yeah, look, I don't think. You know, the, he's too bad from a defensive point of view. No. You know, I think he's quite actually solid there. Um, 
you know, he, he, he doesn't get caught out of position a great deal. I think he could do with a bit of support every now and again. I think there were some moments in the in the first half where Ceballos was the guy who, who actually got back to give him a hand and maybe that was the instruction. So I think mm-hmm. from a defensive point of view, you know, he obviously gives you something in the air. He's strong. He's maybe a bit quicker than people think. Um, sort, of is, like, yeah. sort of like sort of like a gigantic rock rolling down a hill you know there's, yeah. a, there's a momentum to him once he gets going um, but I think where, where obviously we're a little bit restricted is is his attacking potential now you know he hit the bar with a header so you know when, when he's in the box I think he can give us a, a little bit of something it's the combination with Pepe on the right-hand side, it's its overlapping. He's not going to do that. He's not going to get crosses in. And it does sort of blunt you a little bit from an attacking point of view. Yes. And I think looking at the fixture list and seeing that we had, you know, three games this week, two of which away from home, potentially more testing, and knowing that Hector is carrying that injury, I guess leaving him out for this one is excusable it makes some sense I think Maitland-Niles would be a more natural replacement but it seems that he's not met the the non-negotiables Arteta set out at the start of his reign Mm. so uh, Bernd Leno in for some criticism after his role in the Olympiacos yeah, uh, defeat because he conceded a you know a corner he didn't really need to concede and from there we conceded the goal is not all on him but you know you know he should have done better etc cetera, etc cetera. we all know that but you know in general this season he has been one of our one of our best players and he was again on on Saturday called into action very very early on a slack pass from Granit Xhaka and I think there were a few from not necessarily for, just from him but from Ceballos as well uh, mm. so, some passes that went astray which really could have been punished by uh, a better team Um, he was good again he made that save early on he made uh, another save in the first half you know West Ham hit the post early on they had that that chance we'll we'll talk about in a moment with regards to Pablo Marie Um, but Leno Leno comes out of this game I think with um, as much credit as anyone in fact more obviously I think he was probably our, our most instrumental player on the day Yes. I mean, I think the thing to say is probably that a better team than West Ham probably win this game against us. I think given the chances that they had, or at least take something, I mean, they really ought to have scored. But Leno mm. was was instrumental in keeping that clean sheet. And uh, this was the day he became the third Premier League goalkeeper this season to pass 100 saves, uh, which tells wow. you something about how busy he's been. I think Dubravka of Newcastle and Ramsdale of Bournemouth just pipped him to it but he is he's right up there I think he's still second in the league in terms of how many saves he's made this season wow I mean, I, that says a is, lot doesn't it yeah 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 I mean he's been severely tested and I mean rarely more so than in this game I think in the second half as well he made a fantastic save wasn't it a reflex oh, save from a header yeah yeah from Antonio yeah it was yeah. that was a really brilliant save actually and I think what was great about the save was a not not just that he stopped it but that he was strong enough to kind of slap the ball away a bit and out of danger um, very true yeah yeah he- he got some distance on it. I mean, Antonio is a handful. You know, he's very quick, very strong, but we mm. owe him quite a lot, really, for some of the, the chances he missed in the game. Well, I mean, look, uh, let's talk about Pablo Marie then and his yeah. his Premier League debut. He was in for Mustafi, who apparently had a, a thigh injury. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's expected to be fit again. I don't know if he's going to be fit for, for Wednesday. Uh, is there anything on the official website? Because they just... Uh, he's being assessed tight right thigh. 
um, for Skodra and Mustafi um, being assessed ahead of Man City and also in that that latest update Lucas Torreira's uh, recovery process expected to take between 8 and 10 weeks so that's pretty much season over for him um, mm-hmm. after the uh, the ankle injury that he sustained against Portsmouth um, but Pablo Marie there was a moment where um, it was in that first half where I think it was Antonio really muscled him off the ball and then he slightly misjudged the through ball um, you know he slid in to try and get it and didn't get it the two West Ham players well fuck me we were, we were lucky there um, you know that is that is the kind of chance that, that you know any professional team any Sunday league team should be uh, taking the, the run that the guy made was not great the pass from Antonio not great and we got away with that but I think it's one of those things um, that hopefully Marie will learn from in terms of the physicality and the pace of the Premier League. You know, he's he's done uh, played lots for Flamengo and done very well there, but I suspect that the Premier League is quicker and the players are stronger, and that will be a, a little bit of a wake-up for him. Yeah, he was caught out in that moment, no doubt about it, and it shows that he's got a bit of growing to do. He's got a bit of, uh, you know, improvement. To, to come there but I thought on the ball he was pretty good in the game I mean him and Louise were you know had that balance coming out left and right hand side and he played a few nice crossfield passes so I can see the appeal of having the left sided centre half in there um, but I agree that he was tested at points in this and mm. that's inevitable I mean look his debut was impressive but it was against Portsmouth, League One Portsmouth. And yeah. This is a, a different level, a different challenge and something that he's not particularly accustomed to. No, true. I'm just looking up his uh, stats here on the day. Passing 84.5% um, from a mm. defensive point of view. Like long passes, three out of nine. So, you know, that, that thing we saw against Portsmouth, slightly off in the Premier League, but nine ball recoveries. Six passes in the attacking third, which is quite interesting. Two out of two tackles, eight out of eight clearances, five out of five headed clearances, four out of six aerial duels, one block cross. I mean, you mentioned uh, a similarity to Mertesacker when we spoke yeah. about him on the last show, and that was really evident to me, actually, in, in, in Saturday's game. I don't know if it's because the West Ham players are a bit quicker and faster and stronger than, than Portsmouth players. I think it might be, but just in in terms of how he moves, um, his gait is Mertesacker esque. It's very Mertesacker esque. And, you know, I think if there was an area in which Mertesacker uh, had some struggles, it was when, you know, the ball was played inside him on the turn and, uh, you know, you have guys running in behind him. So, you know, it's about reading the game and your position positioning and your, um, you know, using your experience to, to not find yourself in those positions. So, yeah, I can see the similarities there in a big way. Well, it'd be interesting if he plays on Wednesday. I mean, that'd be a massive game for him to go to Manchester City, the team who sort of owned him, but ultimately decided he wasn't really good enough for them. Mm. If he goes there as a Premier League player, he'll be absolutely desperate to impress. Uh, sorry, was just having some coffee. Um, oh, right. Right, so look, not a great deal happened um, in the first half. I think our best chance was that uh, Socrates header, which, which hit the bar. Uh, there was a moment, I think, for Eddie and Kedia. Uh, Bakayo Saka uh, found some space down the left and cut inside, made a good pass, and Fabianski made a save. But that was about the only uh, impact that Eddie had. And I don't necessarily want to talk about 
you know that from his point of view because I think we've we've discussed the the concept of strikers and attacking players getting service. Mm. Is that something which concerns you a bit? Because you know Aubameyang was really quiet, Inketia was was quiet, Pepe was quiet. Um, you know, I know Lacazette got the goal, but it, it sort of came from an element of, of good fortune or, or, you know, it was it was not not as if we cut West Ham open with incisive play. We made the most of a, you know, a deflection, which worked out really well for us. Um, yeah. But, you know, is that a concern? Yes, I think it is a concern. I mean, Aubameyang, he never looked like scoring in the game. I have to say it was would have been, would have been his 50th Premier League goal when I was kind of thinking, there you go, that's going to be the, the story of the day. But... It never really happened for him. Uh, I thought Saka was maybe sort of the brightest of our attacking players. You know, mm. like he there's a directness about Saka that I really, really like. And actually, you know, as talented as Nicolas Pepe is on the other flank, I think he could probably learn a bit from, uh, even though Saka might, is a teenager. Just his first thought is to go towards the goal and he does it in the most direct and expedient way. And actually, in a funny kind of way, our goal kind of came from that you know one of those driving runs from the left hand side in towards the penalty box tucked it back for Aubameyang then of course we get the luck of the deflection mm. which loops it up in the air but I mean creatively we had a lot of the ball Ceballos uh, yeah. had a lot of the ball I thought in deeper areas and generally used it pretty well but when it got to kind of the edge of the penalty box we sort of got caught in that slight horseshoe thing you know of sort mm. of moving around the penalty box without a great degree of penetration yeah I mean just to put some of the stats um, into the mix here uh, mm. West Ham had 14 shots to R9 mm. um, Arsenal completed 530 passes to West Ham's 181 yeah. so you know there's there's uh, you know 147 attacking third passes to West Ham's 51 26 crosses for West Ham to Arsenal's 20 so you know in terms of what you're producing based on how much of the ball you have it is a little bit of a worry and I know there's a bigger discussion to be had about this but just you know um when you look at what West Ham did, not all of those shots, of course, were big chances or anything like it. But, but certainly, there's um, they were uh, able to dig out more from their far, uh, far less possession um, than yeah. than we did. You know, so I don't know if we're looking for the perfect moment because there were a couple of moments worth there. I think there was one or two for Ozil in particular where you're going shoot. Just yes. shoot the, the 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 chances there to have a go, and maybe it's not the most efficient chance or shot position that you're ever going to have. But sometimes, if you just take uh, take a shot from a position, you can get lucky. You can get a deflection, like Aubameyang, for example. You know, which which led to the goal. So there's a. I wonder if there's just that that thing where we have to get out of the mindset of creating the perfect opportunity, or maybe maybe this is in some way instructional from from Arteta because you know it's kind of the way City play in a sense mm. isn't it in that they will work the ball and they'll work the ball into a position that you think is good and they'll keep working it until they find a, a better opening so I don't know whether it's just a lack of confidence or just things not attacking yet from or clicking yet from an attacking point of view or or part of the instructions or maybe all of those things together I don't know yeah I think that's uh, I think that's interesting I mean our shots generally have been relatively uh, meagre under Arteta. It, certainly, sort of anecdotally, that's how it's appeared to me that we haven't taken a ton of shots at goal, but we haven't conceded loads either. And that's why this game 
was I think a worse performance from Arsenal I thought defensively we were much more open than we have been uh, when you look at why uh, I, 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 you know there's a change at centre half there's a change at right back you know Lucas Torreira's come out of the midfield I mean there, all these things could have contributed I just thought West Ham exposed us on mm. the break better than than others have and yeah that swung the balance really I mean you know I sort of alluded to it a few times but I thought we were pretty lucky to win this one yeah I, um, I think so too I think Lacazette said we were lucky Arteta said you know I don't necessarily believe in fortune that much you know if if our goalkeeper makes saves it's because he's having a good game and I, you know there's something to that of course you know if yeah. a striker scores a load of goals everyone says he's played well but if your goalkeeper uh, makes a load of saves yes he's played well but it also means your defence hasn't performed to the to the level that you want and I think you're right that we were very uncharacteristically open at times in this game not something we've really seen from Mikel Arteta's team because the organisation the structure has been there uh, to prevent the kind of um, chances that West Ham had Yeah and I did think again there was a little small tiny amount of tinkering in the shape I mean Arsenal in possession have generally been in this kind of 3-2-5 system it seemed to me anyway with Shaka dropping in deeper but in this game it looked more like a 2-3-5 so you had sort of Louise and Marie kind of at the very back then Socrates a little bit ahead of that with Samuels mm. and Shaka and Shaka actually was I reckon if you looked at Shaka's heat map for this game it would be much more advanced than it has been generally under Arteta and again I think that might have contributed to our slight openness at the back it's tiny things but it, it did seem to have an effect interesting uh, yeah maybe we'll check that out what, what do you think um, the impact might be for a player like Shaka with a left footed centre half because well, I, I it, f- it feels to me like you know, if you've got if you've got two right-footed centre halves as we had in Louise and, and Mustafi, who've been playing the last few games, and then you have Xhaka sort of slotting in there, which of course allows Saka to push forward on the left, which allows Aubameyang to push more centrally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, uh, if you have a, a centre half who can do what you're asking Xhaka to do in that situation, it means that he's got to play in a different area of the pitch. Mm. Mm. And I think and I, probably Xhaka from deeper is a greater asset than Xhaka playing further forward. I mean, there was a couple of a couple of moments, maybe it was in the second half where I'm looking and I'm seeing Xhaka in the kind of inside left channel, high up the pitch, almost yeah. in the on the edge of the box with his back to goal. And you're thinking, well, what the fuck is he doing there? I mean, that's not his game. No, a couple of times I think he almost did get into the box. I mean, he was certainly like at the D on the outside and that's not his game and it's not what he's been asked to do under Arteta thus far. And I think you're right. The introduction of Marie, who, uh, you know, is used to sort of covering a left-back's spot as a left-sided centre-half and also has the ability to bring the ball out on the left side. Um, I'm not going to say it makes Shaka's role redundant, but it, it forces him into a slightly different one and one that is probably less suited to him Mm. so yeah it was kind of interesting I think there was a bit of an evolutionary step from Arteta uh, in the team a kind of step forwards but with that step forwards there was a bit of cost too and a bit of adjustment and I'm not sure we looked quite as coherent as when we we sort of performed the plan A that Arteta laid out as soon as he came in Mm. Um, yeah so look 
we got the goal through Lacazette and a big goal for yeah. him, obviously, because um, his his contribution to our Premier League season has been uh, meagre. It would be fair to say this season, but that's a couple of games now in the last couple of weeks where he scored the winning goal. He got the goal away at Olympiacos. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, that didn't pan out the way we wanted in the second leg. But, um, you know, he got the goal there yesterday or on, on Saturday as well. Uh, an assist from Mesut Ozil. Um, something that we haven't seen uh, anywhere near often enough this season. I think that's only his second assist, you know. And uh, you know, we've been looking for more from Lacazette, and we've been looking for more from from Ozil. Um, not unreasonably, I don't think. And you know, the pair of them combined to to help us win the game. So if we're if we're looking for positives from it, um, those those contributions are positive. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of um, surprising almost to reiterate the fact that Lacazette now has three goals in his last four appearances because uh, he's you know not a player in form, not a player who's playing particularly well, but he is making contributions now, which is you know a positive thing. And I, I know we mentioned about Ozil having chances to shoot and not taking them, but in this instance, he got it absolutely right, didn't he? he laid it on for Lacazette. Mm and uh, tucked it away and of course we had the whole uh, VAR thing afterwards mm. which was uh, I don't know if you had the same pictures as us but they were really looking for a way to oh <laughs> make that goal offside <laughs> the, 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 the moment th- that they disallowed it I was thinking okay oh fuck oh well uh, and then they said well VAR is going to check it and they showed that very first replay where they pause it and you can see where Ozil is when the ball is played right yeah I looked at it and went, he's onside. I could see Mm. that he was onside. And Mm. like you, I sat there for however long it was. I wonder how long it was, actually. Probably two over two minutes, at least. Oh, it was a good long time, yeah. Yeah. And they are drawing lines here, there, and everywhere. Is, you know, is one of his pubes offside? Is his toe offside? Is his little finger offside? You know, it's just... Look, it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because without VAR, we don't get that goal and maybe we don't win that game. Sure. But the experience of it is just, it's just soul-destroying. Particularly when they drag it out and out and out and out and you know from the very first replay that it's a, that it's a good goal. So I don't, I don't really understand why it is they are doing it the way that they're doing it. Why can they not make that decision in 15 seconds, 20 seconds, when it is obvious? Like, is, is, is there an edict to say, you must use this technology to the, you know, the full extent of, of what's available to you? Draw the lines, do the thing, do the check mark. do, 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 do. Draw the lines again. Okay, let's reverse it. Do this, do that, do that. Yeah. You know, if it's just bullshit. It's bullshit the way it's implemented. So I, I you know, I, I've said many times I can't really stand VAR, but I imagine what they will argue is given that they're overturning an on-field decision, they have to make it really clear that they've, like, properly interrogated it so that every possible avenue has been explored because once they change it, they can't go back. That said... Your eyes tell you as soon as you see that replay, like you've said, he's onside. And mm. so, and leave aside, I mean, the fact that fans in the ground have no pictures, they don't know what's going on. Do it's they, a real. They don't lull. put anything on the big screen, no? 
They put a uh, VAR checking. Right, but you don't you don't screen. see in the ground, you don't see the lines being drawn and the... No, no. I mean, I think that's probably for the best in this instance because Why? can you imagine, people would have been going crazy, wouldn't they? Yeah, 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 <laughs> but maybe fucking they would be right to go crazy and maybe that's what they yeah. fucking need to do. You know, Maybe to, that pressure. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what you know is the isn't the other thing about um, about the offside flag going up? I thought there was a, a directive that if there yeah. was a doubt, don't put the flag up and let VAR deal with it. Well, I, I agree, and I think it's really strange to put the flag up in that situation because obviously, you know, I think the goalkeeper would have an argument to say, "Well, you put the flag up." I sort of wasn't really paying attention. You put the flag up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. As a defender, you'd be like, well, the flag went up, so I sort of stopped. Um, It's a really odd one. That I I think it doesn't really make sense. When goals are scored with the flag up and then overturned, like in this instance, it feels a bit wrong to me because it feels like they've scored almost after the players stopped. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Play the whistle, though. Play the whistle, you know. I guess play the whistle. But But can you play the flag? (laughs) You play the flag. I mean, I'll take it. I'll take the goal. I'll take Aubameyang's goal at Old Trafford. I would give them back in a heartbeat to get rid of this, genuinely. I really, really would. Uh, it, it doesn't matter to me enough. I, the live experience is so much worse as a consequence mm. of it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's my big... You know, it's. I think it's a very different experience um, when you're in the ground and when you're sitting at home because at home you're just sort of sitting on your sofa and you're, you know... Sure. You know, you're fir- and you've got you're, something to watch. Yeah, your first world problem is that, like, look at these cunts drawing these fucking lines. You know, and yeah. you're sitting on the sofa and you've got a beer or whatever it is and you're watching the game. But if you're in a stadium and it is, you know, the impact that it has on the, the match-going fans and it opens up this debate again, you know, there's no... I'm not going to go down the road of one, you're a better fan if you're in the ground or if you're not. But like, what what's great about sport is the is the live experience. And we tune in to sport because, A, we want to watch the football, but the crowd and the, the atmosphere and all that plays a part in what makes sport enjoyable as a viewing experience. And if you're taking mm-hmm. so, something so fundamental away from it for the people who are inside the grounds, you know, I don't really see what the what the benefit to the sport is. This is VAR is basically a tool for broadcast entertainment. That's all yeah. it is. It's not really, really about getting more decisions right because they want you know games to be perfect. It is, it is a like a you know a lucky box at the end of a game show open up this box and you could win a million pounds or, you know, you've got to drink a glass of scorpion juice. What's it going to be? You know, that's what it is. And I think the benefits to the actual sport itself and to the live event and to the game of football are not sufficient for us to maintain it or to be, uh, to invest in it. I mean, I, you know, I think the Pandora's box is open. There's no going back now, but... You know, in this this iteration of VAR is just, it's absurd. And I know we benefited from it. I would say this if we didn't as well. So, yes, uh, exactly. And that's the thing. I, I want to have a <laughs> consistent position. To me, as someone who loves uh, the experience of going to a game live, it feels a bit like going to a gig and they've applied auto-tune on all the mics. And it's like, <laughs> well, it's perfectly in tune now. Isn't that what you want? And it's like, no. That isn't what I want. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. 
anyway. Yeah. anyway. Uh, what did you make of the other VAR moment in the game, which was the Lacazette possible penalty tussle? I think, did you see that one? Yeah, I saw that, and I think if... Um, if they'd gone back and if they'd awarded something for it, I think it would have been a free kick because it started outside the outside. area, didn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I don't understand how hauling a guy around the neck as you're running with him isn't a foul, though. You know, I, I don't get it. But maybe that, that's another thing that they don't want to open up, you know, the grappling and all those kind of things. I mean, it, it, it's one of the curiosities, isn't it, that we do not or very rarely see VAR check all the pushing and pulling and shoving and everything else that goes on from corner kicks and free kicks. Mm. We mm. don't see any real focus on that. And I think if you were to go through a game, you would probably find, by the letter of the law, countless incidents that should be free kicks one way or the other. It's how you decide, of course. Like, is it, is it, you know, where, where do you give the free kick? Is it the defender who's fouling the attacker or the attacker who's fouling the defender beside him? You know, which one do you give? Um yeah. But I, you know, I, I, I thought it was so blatant that we should at least have had a free kick. But there you go. I think, I think, that, well, I think you're right. It would have been a free kick. Although I think they can only check the penalty. I think that's what's happening there. They can right. only check for a penalty. So they're sort of judging that and going, well, maybe it's free kick, but we can't give that. Uh, it's one of those as well wonder, where, yeah. because when Lacazette retaliates a little bit right at the end, it kind of gives the referee an out, doesn't it? Or, or the VAR an out. It enables them to go, well, it's 50-50, even though it's, you know, 80-20 for the vast majority of it. Mm. Anyhow. Anyhow, look, we got there in the end. We got three points. Um, to, we got to the magical 40-point uh, mark, which is great. We are staying up. We are staying up. Um, and I don't know what more we can say about that particular game. Um I mean, in the context of the weekend, it made the Premier League table look quite nice for about 24 hours. Uh, sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were, we were close enough to Manchester United and a little bit closer to Chelsea, but the two of them won their games yesterday. City uh, going down 2-0 to United and Everton getting an absolute uh, uh, thrashing from, from Chelsea. So, you know, it looks a bit more difficult. Uh, the gaps are a bit wider. I mean, not not impossible or insurmountable but but certainly um yeah a little a little less pretty than it was at at 5 p.m on saturday evening yeah i think it will be difficult i really do because i think even between chelsea and united and us you know you've got teams like wolves sheffield united who will accumulate plenty of points i would imagine some of our fixtures you know we've got to go to man city wednesday you know Mm. i don't know but we are just one point behind Spurs, which I am enjoying, with a game in hand, too. Yeah, that's good. That's always good. And hopefully there will be a St. Totteringham's Day uh, this season. And it looks like Mourinho is, is you know, heading much more quickly to, yeah. <laughs> to the... Not cr- so much... <laughs> Not so much throwing Ndombele under the bus as strapping him to the tracks and running the bus directly over him. <laughs> yes, that was good. That was good. It's, it normally takes him a, like a season and a half to get there, but you know he's gone. He's Fast going forward. in. He had two footed all the way from his early days at Tottenham. So My favourite thing he said was the. Did you see after the midweek game? He said the board must decide whether they wish to win the Burnley game or the Leipzig game. The board have to decide. Something like that. Yeah, he was like, you know, I will speak with the board and they must choose. He basically said, I'm going to throw one of these games and it's up. You, you, you've got to decide now which it's going to be because I guarantee you I can't win both of them. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, they got to Leipzig on Tuesday, which they're 1-0 down in, and then on Sunday they host Manchester United, revitalised by their win over Manchester City. Mm. So they got, they've still got Sheffield United away in a couple of weeks' time. Not bad. They've still got us to play at, at White Hart Lane in April, so... Yeah, I'm really. I've got my eyes fixed firmly on Mourinho at this point. Okay. I, you know, anything else is a bonus to me. Uh, yeah, let's let's drive that fucker crazy. Um, <laughs> that would be good. So, I mean, just one final question before we take a uh, a break yeah. and go into part two because there are some interesting questions about stuff and things. What do you think would be Mikel Arteta's main takeaway from this game, from the uh, 1-0 win over West Ham? If there were one thing you you looked at and thought he needs to have a, a solid think about that, what would it be? Uh, personally, I think that... I, I've seen Danny Sparks coming for a lot of praise uh, following the game, and I understand why. He was very busy on the ball, and he was kind of instrumental in everything we did. I came away from this game thinking... Our midfield is a puzzle that really needs solving. And um, I don't think... We've said all season the balance isn't quite right. And I still think the balance isn't quite right. And that Mm. was my sort of big takeaway. What about you? I think the right-hand side... I know. Okay, yeah, that's a good shout as well. I I, I know, obviously, he's got an issue there with Bellerin. um, But I think we are... It's not that we're ignoring an area of the pitch completely, but we're not doing enough to, again, if we want to talk balance, you know, we attack a lot down the left-hand side. We overlap down the left-hand side. We so very rarely overlap down the right. And it was, you know, it was interesting against Portsmouth that we saw that from, from Reese Nelson, you know, and it, it produced for us. You know, mm. that, that ability to, to overlap down that, that side of the pitch, you know, I think it would be beneficial for Pepe. You know, if a fullback is being pulled out of position and Pepe is coming back inside on his left foot, if that fullback isn't like standing right in front of him, maybe he can do more with the ball. So I think we've got to think about how we use the right-hand side, how we can use that right-hand space to attack with. Mm. and maybe what the balance of the, the team is in that regard. So, if- I can fix it, by the way. Shall I tell you how to fix it? Go on. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I was thinking about this during the game as well. Um, so, basically, this team is kind of a five and a five. So, it's like a two-three-five or three-two-five in attack. So, it's five more defensive players and five more attacking players, right? And mm. that line-up, usually across the front, is something like Saka, Aubameyang... Um, Nketiah or Lacazette Ozil Pepe and obviously it means the right back doesn't overlap doesn't go forward doesn't get outside Pepe I think that you Arteta's unlikely to shift from that because all Guardiola's teams all the best teams in the world have that kind of five man forward line because it Mm. gives you spread it gives you width now it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be comprised of the five players playing those positions so Pepe, you would more naturally say, if I said to you, which of those five positions most suits Pepe, I think most people would say not the extreme right-hand side, 
but the one one in, you know, like Aubameyang does from the left, sort of coming inside and having a bit more flexibility and ability to go in the middle. Mm. Now, of course, you're then like, well, I'd, I'd love an overlapping right back um, so that you then have something that's kind of mirrors what you're doing on the left and a bit of tandem play on that side. So I think that Ozil is kind of the issue here because, you know, accommodating him kind of prevents you from creating that overlap on the right. I think if you replaced him with a more, uh, like a number eight star midfielder, who'd be one of the the deeper five, as if you will, mm. and he had an overlapping right back, then I think suddenly your team shape, it's more, um, well, I guess it's more, what, uh, what's the word when something's mirror image? Uh, um, symmetrical, symmetrical, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not that I'm sure that necessarily matters, but I think it just suddenly opens up the pitch in a much more interesting way. And that's not to sort of, be particularly critical of Meza Ozil. I just feel like maybe we are accommodating him in a way that's not helping the shape of the side. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the 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 fact that you've got two left-footed players sort of playing out there together who are both naturally inclined to come back inside makes your team very narrow mm. in itself. And actually, I was thinking about I was going, do we have too many left-footers in the team? I was, you know, it occurred to me just on <laughs> yeah. Saturday because we had Pablo Marie, we had Saka, we had Shaka, we had Ozil, we had Pepe. Um, I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with left-footed players, of course, but I just wonder if you're looking for more balance in the team. We were uh, a little bit too uh, left-foot heavy, particularly over that side. I think, you know, Ozil and yeah. Pepe, I'm not saying they cancel each other out, but they don't really seem to do much beyond pass the ball to each other those little layoffs and then one of them shuffles back inside and plays it into midfield you know they don't necessarily yeah. combine I know they've had moments where, where where it's happened but in general they don't really give you what you would like uh, from an attacking point of view so again we, we uh, might talk about what who's the future and who isn't and whether that informs mm. your decision making I basically think that extreme right position on the sort of front five should be filled by either a, a Nelson-esque right-footed forward or an overlapping right back who is right-footed as well. And, and mm. I, I, you know, it does beg the question, though, are we in a position, have we got a right back to do that, that Arteta's willing to use? I mean, given that Bellerin's carrying an injury, I suspect that's played partly into the decision to sort of give him a slightly more conservative role and not ask him to do box-to-box sprints for 90 minutes. So it's tricky. Mm. It's a, but I agree that in in the sort of mid-term, you know, that needs solving, definitely. All right. On that note of balance and symmetry, we will take a break and mm-hmm. come back with part two, which if we're going to do this right, will be exactly the same length as part one. So join us for your questions and more right after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to part two of the Arscast Extra, in which we answer the questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Uh, a question that popped up quite a bit, James, mm. over the weekend was, you know, in the wake of a uh, a win, which wasn't necessarily the most convincing performance, there were sort of parallels drawn with the 22-game unbeaten run that Unai Emery went on, where, you know, we were yeah. winning, but the performances and the stats suggested that, you know, we couldn't maintain it. That proved to be the case, et cetera, et cetera. So we have some questions. Uh, Darren Michael, for example, at Darren Michael, various in-game stats appear similar to the Emery 22-game unbeaten run. Should this be of concern? Concern. Uh, also, let me see here. I had one. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Uh, from Ali, Ali Inayat, who's at A underscore Inayat, who says, in your post-match coverage, you talked about the results under Arteta being better than Emery despite performances being patchy. Is this not the same as the start of Emery where he had a long unbeaten run? It feels different, but what do you think? I think it's an important thing to talk about because, you know, we don't want to fall into a trap where we're sort of just nicer about Arteta's team because, I don't know, we like his haircut more mm. or something. Um, I think there is a qualitative difference between these performances. I mean, maybe not from the un unbeaten run, but certainly from what we were seeing from Arsenal at the start of this season. You know, they were not even dominating possession. You know, they were surrendering possession. They were on the back foot for the majority of the game. Uh, they were the side looking to break and and make the most of the limited possession they had. Uh, I think, you know, that, that has changed as a dynamic within our games. I think we've exhibited more control mm. under Arteta. We've basically behaved more like uh, a big team, a big club, and I know that that's something you wrote about this yeah. weekend. Yeah, yeah, I liked I liked what Arteta said afterwards. Is you know, the idea, you know, he he can't have looked at that game and thought, yes, you know, that was exactly what I want from my team. But his remarks, his comments, a big team, big teams find a way to win were his exact words, and mm. I like that reinforcing the message to the players that you know we. Uh, this is Arsenal. This is a big club. It's a long way from where we want it to be. It's a long way from where it should be. And, you know, we all know the, the reasons why and what we've got to do to get back there, et cetera, et cetera. But I, f I always felt like with Emery that for whatever reason, he never understood the stature 
of Arsenal. And I don't know how you can be a football person, a football manager, somebody who was, you know, existed in the world at a time when Arsenal, you know, were winning doubles and winning titles and, you know, moving to a big new stadium, etc., etc. You know, the purported ambition of Arsenal has always been big. You know, our ability to get there and to, to fulfill those ambitions has been, you know, in question and, and um, you know, problematic over the last number of years. So I never quite understood why Emery didn't get what Arsenal should be or was supposed to be and and certainly yeah. some of his decisions some of his team selections you know the way he would get his team to play the focus on the opposition um all of those things sort of fed into this kind of inferiority complex which i guess is just part of emery's his character his nature right some people are like that in general and i don't mean that to be critical of him that's that's who he is um but i like what arteta said about that 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 Okay, this this wasn't good enough, but we're a big team. We're a, I, you want the players to believe that. You need the mm. players to believe that. That if you're going to set certain standards, you can't just be meek after a result like that. You know, you can acknowledge that you've got things to work on, but you can also reinforce a message that yet, yeah, you know, come on, we're a big club and we should win these games. You know, and and I think as well, there's something about. Um, the context of this, you know, of course, Arteta took over at a very difficult time. He'd no preseason. You know, there were there's been a lot of stuff for him to deal with in terms of injuries and the schedule and and all of those things, which I think is very different from Emery because Emery had you know full preseason twice. You know, he had transfers, he had players brought in that obviously he wanted and transfers that he approved, and and his football w- wasn't great. And I think we also have to step back and remember that we've had lots and lots of games like. This. This, not just under Emery, uh, under Arsene Wenger as well, even when Arsenal were a much, much better team than they are right now, there were games that we really had to scrap out a, a 2-1 win, you know, a 2-1 win over Charlton or something like that. You know, football is difficult, you know? So I think we, we kind of have to remember that um, games uh, can be won uh, in trying circumstances, obviously you want to see underlying improvement in performances and and all those kind of things. I think in general we have under Arteta, and that's why to me it feels different uh, than it did under Emery. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's funny Arteta. What he says sometimes, uh, if you broke it down, if you looked at it on the page, it's not altogether different from things other managers might say, but. There's so much more. It means it's, you believe it so much more from him. I don't know why. I think that's just the quality of his personality. And I think also, as much as you look at the tactical things and the results, I do think that he is trying to implement uh, a cultural shift at Arsenal. Yes. And he seems to be achieving that. I think Emery tried to do the same thing, but it never really felt especially successful. But Arteta, because he has these non-negotiables because he's prepared to really draw a line and mean it. I think it is having an effect. Um, And so I think there are kind of, there are almost bigger things at play Mm. than results and performances. But look, this wasn't a good performance and I'm not going to sit here and tell anybody it was. It was, you know, we were fortunate to win this match. Um, But like you, I kind of feel like, there's something attitudinal occurring, which is which is positive. Yeah, but I also am aware that Arteta hasn't had a preseason, and that if they look like Emery's team, well, it's it is Emery's team. I mean, with the exception of Pablo Marie and Cedric Suarez, it's all the same. Who players, hasn't played? You know? Yeah, 
So, you know, it's it's the same group of players without a preseason. I think there are inevitably going to be some mm. parallels, um, but there are still enough positive signs for me. I was, you know, I wrote about this this morning, but I was reading about looking at Guardiola's first season at Manchester City, which Arteta was there as his assistant. And, Mm. you know, I think they finished third. They went out of the Champions League to Monaco. People were queuing up to say, you know, what's this guy doing? You know, it's it's not going to work. It's going to take him, it's going to be impossible for him to implement his plans in England. And the next season they accumulated 100 points, won the Premier League. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that's not going to happen. But... When you are trying to enact a, a big shift in the way a team thinks, the way a team behaves, the way a team plays football, inevitably that will take time. And I do think that we have to balance our mm. our expectations against the need for patience. That's yeah. basically the game for us as supporters at the moment. Exactly. The reality of where we were. You know, the old, you yeah. can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a shambles. It was a shambles mm-hmm. when Arteta took over. I mean, there's just no way of escaping that and no way of not referencing that in the context of what we're doing right now, barely a, a couple of months after he, he took the job. So I, I think, you know, if we're having these kind of discussions in a year's time, if we're not seeing any Absolutely. marked improvement, then, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a reasonable and, and rational discussion to be had about that. But for now, I, I think we just kind of have to be pleased when we can scrap out a win in a game like this on a day which doesn't um which doesn't really go for us from a, a performance point of view um I, i'll be intrigued to see what happens on wednesday because i'll be honest i expect arsenal to lose that game as we often lose against the big teams away from okay, home well i've got a couple of questions about this so let's let's oh, okay. go with there um we have one from facebook uh, from Mats Berglund, who says, what is our best tactic to beat City? And from mm. the Discord, uh, from Juran, he says, as, as Arteta will be managing against City, a team that he's been an active part in coaching this season and who are still under the same coaching team, how big an advantage would this be for us going into Wednesday? Or will we see some serious tactical mind games from Pep and his team? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. What I was about to say was... Be- you know, this will be a fascinating litmus, litmus test of. I don't necessarily think Arsenal, you know, they should go there and get a result. But if you think about the Manchester City game at the Emirates Stadium, where Arteta was on the bench for City, uh, he met with Arsenal that night and became the manager sort of soon after. And he mm. spoke in his opening press conference about how low it made him feel to see the place Arsenal were in for that fixture, how dejected the players looked, how club looked kind of bowed under the pressure of all the problems they were facing. Um, I do think we go to Manchester City now, just a few months later, with a very different trajectory. Um, And I'm intrigued to see how that manifests on the field. I... Uh, I'm also very, very interested to see how how Guardiola and Mikel kind of face off. I mean, Guardiola does have a tendency to put out interesting tactical plans mm. when he thinks it's necessary. I mean, he did it in the Champions League the other week. He, yeah, I mean, do you think that's up. do you think that's something Arteta will be thinking about? It'll be like, what is Pep gonna do? Is he gonna try and second guess? what Pep is going to do, or is he going to be a bit more focused on what he can get from his team? Like, I well, wonder... For the most part, 
Go on. No, I just wonder what 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 the mindset will be because I think one of the things that I've I've liked under Arteta is the uh, you know the idea that he he is more focused on what his team do rather than the opposition. Mm. But because of the proximity to Pep and because of how well he knows the players, the temptation to kind of use that insider knowledge, if you like, must be pretty strong. Yeah, if there's ever a game he's going to be, you know, sucked into that way of thinking, surely it's it's this. And also, I mean, there's another kind of added uh, ingredient to it, which is that Guardiola reportedly effectively gave Arteta the keys to the Man City team for a match against Arsenal um, not too long ago. So he's kind of been on both sides of this tactical debate. I think my hunch is that he's not going to dramatically mix things up. I think he is going to stick to his guns and stick to his gunners, as it were, Mm. and play his Arsenal team his way at Manchester City, at the Etihad, not going to look to do anything drastically different. Um, But it's, you know, that's just a hunch. But Mm. I just feel like, like you say, that has basically been his approach from the get-go. Bit of a worrying one, obviously, facing Man City, you know, anyway, they're such a good team, but having lost to Derby. It's, n- it's, it's not the result that we wanted, is it? No, it really isn't because you you are under such pressure to bounce back from, you know, imagine if it were us playing somebody and we just lost to Tottenham, everybody is looking for a response, you know, from the players, not just in terms of the performance, but in terms of the attitude, the motivation, what you show on the pitch, how committed you are, all of those things. You've got to make up for what is kind of the worst result of your season in a way yeah uh, they will be desperate to avenge that result and I think had they won that game you know they might be looking at this one thinking well we've got a lot of fixtures coming up we've got Real Madrid on the not too mm. distant horizon you know they might have taken their eye off the ball that focus will be absolutely steely set on this Arsenal game now mm. um, and look I can't lie, as encouraged as I am by what Arteta has done, you know, this is not a fixture where we have generally fared well. <laughs> is it? Is it a, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, is there any pressure on us? Maybe I mean, not. I mean, you know, I, look, I can't, you look at the Premier League table and you think, well, even a point could be really valuable come the end of the season. So it's not a game you can write off or anything like it. But but is this a game that if it doesn't go our way, we should be um, really unhappy about? Of course, the context of the game and how the, you know, how the result pans out, you know, whatever that result might be, plays a part in how you think about it, of course. But, you know, on paper, if you look at them and you look at us and you look at, you know, where we are and where they are and everything else... You know, I don't think there's any realistic expectation that we can uh, can go to to Man City and and win. You know, look, mm. football is strange and weird, and strange things happen all the time, and weird results happen. So you never know. But if you were if you were putting your car keys on it, you you know, you wouldn't be that confident. You'd be driving home. No, and maybe people will be kind of a bit revolted by the heresy of what I'm about to say, but. <gasps> Uh, no, I was going to say, I think um, I, I'm not, I'm so unconfident of us winning this match that almost what I'm looking for is things other than that. I'm kind of looking for Arsenal to go to this ground and not play 
within themselves, not play in a in a manner that's sort of clearly inhibited or like they're, you know, just there to get a pasting or just do damage limitation. I'd love to see Arsenal go to this ground and say, look, how can we take the game to Manchester City mm. when we have the opportunity? I, I would kind of love to see a bit of a a different approach because we, you know, we lose these matches. So trying something different and the team being committed to that and playing with some measure of belief would feel, would probably feel like progress. Mm. Um, but look, they may surprise me. I mean, if they do, it'll be absolutely tremendous because like you say, even one point could have a pretty big yeah. influence on the league table coming in the season. Could do, could do. Right, your question. Uh, let's have this question from Ramakrishan on Twitter at RamsArsenal21. And Rama says, what do you think on Willian as a right wing option? He might come for free, but are we going to pay his wages? Do you think this would hinder the development of Nelson, Pepe, etc.? I wrote about this today, actually, on the blog. So if you want to have a little read about it, um, head over to arsblog.com. Um, look, I think Willian is a good player. Yeah, he is a good player. He is a yeah. good player. And he's plenty of Premier League experience. And, um, yeah, that's it. Um, but Arsenal spent £72 million on a right winger last summer. Mm-hmm. And that's not a transfer we can afford to just ride off. We have to try and make that work. We've also got Reese Nelson in there. William is also 31 years of age. 32 in August, I believe. Until then, though, James. Of course, he remains 31. 31. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's how it works. Um, you know, it, it feels to me a bit like... Maybe it's two and two put together and people getting five because of his agent. His agent is obviously Kia Jurabchian, who, as we know, is fairly influential now in the corridors of power at Arsenal. He is uh, very close to Edu. He's close to Raul Sanyehi. He is the agent Mm. of Cedric, um, who was brought to the club in January despite being patently unfit. Um, You know... That's a little bit of a a worry for me in terms of the agent influence and what have you. Of course, Kia was in the director's box um, on Saturday to watch Arsenal. That's nice, isn't it? That's a nice place to be if you're an agent. We had, he had his own box for years, so it's nice that he's now moved yeah, over to the director's Yeah, he's been box. upgraded for all his loyalty, <laughs> you know, for, for putting in the, the money. Um, yeah, look, I... I I don't dislike William as a player. I just would worry that that's a transfer that's happening for the wrong reasons and would be at the expense of of other options that we need to maybe pursue. Do we need a player like that? That's what I'm trying to work out. I mean, I'm not sure we do, given Pepe, Nelson, Ozil probably not going anywhere, uh, Saka, Martinelli. Mm. It's not an area screaming out for attention. Um, no, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, look, you could you could make a good case for you know putting him in our team now. Would he make us a little bit better or have more of an impact than some players? Maybe he would. You know, again, he's he's a decent player. But I think if we're looking at this Arsenal team and we're looking at rebuilding and all the difficult decisions that are going to come with that, I'm not sure throwing a whack of money at a 31 year old is really the right strategy. 
Like it doesn't feel like it's it would be like if you're sitting down right now and you're the transfer team and you're the head of football and you're saying what do Arsenal really need, you know, this summer? I'd, I'd say Willian is pretty low down the list. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a Brazilian footballer who's played for Shakhtar and then Chelsea, I think we can assume his wage demands are going to be mm. substantial. Um, uh, listen, I, I, I don't completely hate it because I think in our transfer strategy there is going to there are there is going to be room for like the odd free transfer signing so that we don't spend loads on transfers for everybody yes. because I just don't think we can afford to do that um but equally you know you wouldn't want to be seeing him be given a long contract would you he's given that he's 32 you know in the summer mm. um so yeah it'll and I don't think it's an area where we're desperately in need and if you told me oh Meza Ozil's going to go and we want like an experienced creative player I'd be like okay maybe but the way I see it I don't think Meza Ozil is going to go so I just worry about filling that gap up mm. um, what about this question speaking of other options in, in sort of those parts of the pitch uh, Luke London on Twitter says what has Martinelli done hasn't seemed to put a foot wrong but Arteta seems to prefer Willock or Eddie as a sub when Martinelli has been so dangerous it really frustrates me I genuinely I don't know. Um I mm-hmm. thought he was really good against Portsmouth, you know, the effort and the and the work rate that he put in was was fantastic. Nearly scored a goal again, uh, that that Nelson cross. Um I don't I genuinely I I I don't know. I mean, I think Arteta seems to be quite wedded to the idea of Aubameyang on the left and uh, a striker whether it's in Ketty or Lacazette. Um you know, playing centrally. He doesn't seem keen or willing at this point to play Aubameyang as a central striker, which would open up the left-hand side for Martinelli more than anyone else, wouldn't it? Because if Aubameyang is playing centrally, it's not going to be Enkedia. It's not going to be Lacazette. It could be Saka if you get Tierney back. But the option then is Martinelli on that left-hand side. I just assume that he is seeing things in training and and judging the development of a young player and maybe thinking he's not quite ready for for consistent Premier League action. Um, I, I, I genuinely I don't know. I'd I'd love to to hear what he has to say about it. To be honest, yeah. I mean, is it as simple as he he kind of regards Martinelli and Aubameyang as operating from the same? space in attacking terms and Aubameyang doesn't come off because he's too good mm. I mean you, we saw over the weekend like a lot of people saying well look you know this is another example of why Aubameyang should be playing as our central striker but I wonder what what sort of a game would he have had if he played there would it have been much different if you're not getting any service whether you're cutting in from the left or whether you're central you know if you're not getting service in either of those positions Mm. How much different would it be for for Aubameyang? And look, I, I you know I think there's a good case to be made for playing him as a, a central striker, and I, I personally would like to see it for a little while. Um, but again, maybe the reluctance to to do that is because he doesn't quite feel an 18 year old is ready to play week in week out in the Premier League, and that might that might be the the crux of it. 
Yeah, and I think Martinelli, look, he he has massively exceeded all expectations this season and his goal-scoring form, particularly in the Europa League and the Cup games, was fantastic in the first half of the, of the campaign. But I also think that, that 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 creates a tendency to assume that he is just ready to do that now, week in, week out. Mm. And I actually think when we look at his recent performances, you know, that's not necessarily the case and there has there have been games where he's played and not been massively effective I mean I'm thinking I, I'm having to remind myself now but he played away at Olympiacos he played 90 minutes at Burnley and he didn't have a, a massive impact in those matches you know so I think it's kind of understandable that Arteta would be like well look we don't have to throw him in every single match as for preferring Joe Willock I do just think that's a positional thing I think that's him looking to add you know, legs mm. and uh, athleticism in midfield. I, I think it's the Aubameyang thing principally that he he sees them as kind of not rivals, but contenders for the same spot. And when you're in a game, you basically want Aubameyang on the field, don't you? Mm. Ashley Moss says, what are your thoughts on Mikel looking like he's going to give Mkhitaryan a chance? Surely with the wages he's on and the fact we could get a fee for him, we should be looking at selling him. Well, can I ask, answer your question with a question? Yeah. Because JG, JJG, who's at JJG AFC, says, does Arteta say nice things about senior players to be di- diplomatic slash hold his cards to his chest? Or does he really intend to keep them? Ozil, Shaka, Mustafi, Mickey, Laka, all gone this summer, in my opinion. And while I don't necessarily agree that he'll be quite as ruthless as that this summer, I do think there's a degree to which he manages egos and big players exceptionally well and he creates a perception that everyone has an opportunity uh, to impress him mm. but I'm sure beyond that you know he has opinions he, he says the right thing basically a lot of the time yes. Yeah, and I would say this Mkhitaryan instance is another example of him going who knows what's going to happen this summer maybe I will have Mkhitaryan back here I don't want him back here unmotivated and feeling like I think he's got no shot do you know what I mean? So he's yeah. just saying the, the obvious thing. I, I think it is. Look, he's been a player very recently, so he knows the dressing room and he knows players and he knows egos and he knows how to... He seems, you know, it's, again, early stages, but he does seem to have decent man management skills. And that was something I think that was evident when he was captain as well. People talked to, you know, the, the other players talked a lot about Arteta and what a, a you know, a good guy he was in the dressing room and, and what mm. kind of an influence he was. I, I think there's just, you know, it's a practical thing to say about Mkhitaryan. Like, what do you say if, if someone says, are you going to give Mkhitaryan a chance? You don't say, no. No. Of course. Because of course. he's got a year left on his contract and we can't, uh, we can't do anything other than sell him. Or you can't say, no, I don't really think he's a very good player. So that's why he says, yes, you know, I've always rated him. I've always liked him, something like that. The reality is what we did last summer with Mustafi was like, we told everyone that A, we didn't want him. And, you know, B, the reason, basically the reason we didn't want him was because he was so terrible. You know, yeah. everyone could see it. Uh, it kills the market for a player. So, you know, you've got to try and maintain as much value in a player who's got one year left on his contract as possible. I think Arsenal will absolutely sell Mkhitaryan this summer. I think they'll take whatever they can get for him. And I think what Arteta has done is just ensure that, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, you know, potential suitors aren't saying, well, this guy's a completely busted flush. He's shit. They don't want him. So what the fuck are we? I, A, we're not going to, 
pay very much for him, if anything at all. So you 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 kill the demand for the player, and you also kill his value, and that's all that is to me. Mm, I completely agree. Uh, and, and what would it you know what would it mean if he came out and said no, he's finished here? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah it, exactly. What, who would that help? Mm. Uh, nobody. Nobody. Okay, I've um, got a question here. Oh, go on. Um, it comes from Phil, who's at Dubluner. Um, and this is a bit, a bit more serious. Um, he's talking about the coronavirus. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, given the impact this virus is having on sport and that it's unlikely to pass soon, have you considered that next season could be entirely behind closed doors? Sorry for the grim question, but not even next season. It seems almost inevitable that this season is going to see games played behind closed doors. If you don't or aren't already aware, Wednesday's match between PSG and Borussia Dortmund is uh, in the Champions League is being played behind closed doors. Uh, we've seen what's going on in, in Italy. Matches being play, played behind closed doors. There's no large gatherings of people, so... Yeah, what, what, what do you think this is going to happen or how it's going to impact our, our season? You don't have to go full Jurgen Klopp on me here and tell me that you're not an expert on the virus. <laughs> the we know that, yeah, we know that. Um, and we're not making out that we're in any way experts on the virus, but just talking about what the impact might be on on sport and Arsenal um, and football because, you know, that's what we're all watching. Yeah, well, we should hear more today because the British government have got a COBRA emergency meeting where they're going to decide the next steps really for tackling this virus it's look the more I read about this and the more I learn about it the more um, surprised I am that measures have not been taken yet to prevent some of these large scale public gatherings I mean I was at the football on Saturday at the Arsenal game Mm. and it was kind of mad to think you know there's 60,000 people here there's a two-week incubation process for this virus. We don't know how many people are carrying it. We don't know how mm. many could potentially be spreading it. And, of course, I know I completely understand people who feel that people are overreacting, and I'm sure a degree of overreacting is happening. I don't know. We do necessarily need to stockpile quite as much toilet paper. Yeah. As how many have. rolls have you got? Uh, I'm actually surprisingly low, so <laughs> I'll be the man desperately wandering the streets, screaming. Please. As far as I can see, there's none left. Yeah, the I know. There's a, well, yeah, there's some leaves on some plants in the garden, so there's there's always that option. But <laughs> duck, it, duck leaves. But there is a kind of weird thing happening in Britain, where I mean, in the classically British way, there's very much that sort of thing of like. You know, stuff all this nonsense. We're hardy Brits. We'll get on with it, and you know, we'll it won't affect us, kind of thing. We're still going to handshake. We're still going to hug. And I think I've been drawn into that too for a while, and I hold my hands up to it. But I think that's born of the idea that like most healthy people who could trap this virus will be fine. But I think that that's a bit of an indictment of. A way of thinking, you know, it's vulnerable people who yes. we should be thinking about. Correct. Situation. Correct. And, and yeah, and, yeah. Go I on. mean, you know, if it's a one in hundred death rate, I mean, everybody knows somebody who will be seriously vulnerable, be it because they're, you know, over sixty years old, apparently, which isn't very old, or be it because they have, you know, asthma or some kind of other uh, respiratory condition mm. that will make them super vulnerable to this virus. I just think those are the people we have to do our utmost to protect. You know, you're not mm. washing your hands for you. You're washing your hands for those people. Yes. Um, 
I mean, you should be washing your hands anyway. Let's be clear about that. But <laughs> sure, um, yeah. So I, I would really support. This is a very personal thing, but I would support almost any measure the government sought to put in place to control the spread of this virus because we've seen in China and in Hong Kong that when they have taken more drastic measures, the results have actually been yeah. pretty decent. Containment is a way, uh, you know, is, is slowing down the spread of the virus. Um, yeah. You know, being sensible about things like mass gatherings and, and what have you. And as somebody who is asthmatic, um, you know, that would be that would be great. Um, you know, we, we've got issues here. There's the St. Patrick's Day parade, which is mm-hmm. due to take place next week, which is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Dublin, which seems, uh, you know, insane to me because, you know, while the, the amount of cases here in Ireland right now is quite low and I think it's you know similar in the UK when you look at how it's spread in Italy why would it be any different here or there or in the United States or any country which um, is going to be affected by this virus and it seems to be worldwide there was a brilliant video which I watched last night um the CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, a guy called Dr. Richard Hatchett, um, mm-hmm. talked to Channel 4 News about the virus, about the spread, about what what governments need to do and how people need to react to it. He says it is the scariest outbreak he's dealt with in his 20-year career. I will put a link to that video. It's 20 minutes long. I know in this world of short attention spans and, you know, I'm guilty of that. When I see a YouTube video that's more than like two minutes long, I'm like, fuck that. Give me the payoff in 120 seconds or less. This is really, really well worth watching because I do think it is something that we all have to deal with and you're absolutely right. You know, the majority of people are going to be probably fine if they contract it, if they're, you know, healthy and of a certain age. But, you know, if you've got elderly parents or if you've got anybody in your family who is um, prone to illness or immunosuppressed or whatever it might be, Mm-mm-mm. you know, you you have a responsibility to them and also everyone else in, in society as well. And it's unfortunate. There's been, you know, some really unpleasant uh, connotations involved in, in this um, thing as well. I got a DM from our friend Jason um, from Humans of the Arsenal. Oh, yeah. So Jason um, is an Australian of Filipino descent uh, who was at the Emirates on on uh, Saturday to watch Arsenal versus West Ham and was uh, called coronavirus um, by some people, which is really unfortunate and really unpleasant and obviously completely unacceptable that this yeah. isn't just something that um, is Chinese or, or whatever it is. This is something that we're all going to have to deal with and we all have to be vigilant and we all have to be aware and we all have to be sensible. And, you know, if that comes at the expense of not being able to go to football matches for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever it might be, then that's the way it's got to be. You know? Yeah, it's a small price to pay in context. And I, I saw that video as well, and there's nothing more frightening than a, a scientist dispassionately relating their opinion about something. Oh, absolutely. I mean? Oh, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in an era where news and facts and science and knowledge are being derided constantly as fake or whatever it might be, you know, f- just fucking watch this. Watch this. This is cold, hard, scientific fact. And let that inform you and not 
fucking idiots going to Costco and buying 60 toilet rolls, you know? Yeah, that's really not the issue. I mean, funnily enough, the whole thing makes me think of Arsene Wenger, bizarrely, because, you know, I remember him saying we live in an age where kind of expertise isn't really trusted Mm. and it feels particularly pertinent at the moment. But, yeah, I, I would just say I... You know, for people who might be listening thinking, this is a load of fuss over nothing, all I can say is I have been in that place with this. You know, I've been through that and thought the same thing. And as soon as you understand or think about the repercussions, you know, I I don't think that's a sustainable approach. I think that, you know, we all need to be super aware and do basically what we're told. Which, you know, it's, it's never fun. But yeah, that's well, I mean, look, look, the amount of people who died in Italy has gone up by 133 in one day. It's yeah, 133 yeah. people who are dead because of this virus. And it's obviously far more advanced in Italy than it is here and in other places in the world. But, you know, as I said, what makes us special or what makes us unique, you know, um, we're just as susceptible to this thing as everybody in Italy is. So look at the measures that are being put in place there and do them early because, you know, what looks maybe extreme now in a few weeks' time will probably look like the height of common sense. So that's why yeah. I, I really think um, here in Ireland, the, the government, we don't have a government, unfortunately, at the moment, because we've had an election and we haven't been able to form a government. But the people who are there right now have a responsibility to, um, you know, to this country and to all other countries, because, you know, there are people who are going to fly into Ireland for St. Patrick's Day and there's a mass gathering of hundreds of thousands of people. And then they're going to fly home. You don't just have a, a local responsibility. You have, you know, a social responsibility to to the people in your own country, but to people in other countries, because that's how this thing will spread. And, Mm. you know, call Uh, it off. We can all stay home and drink green beer and have a, you know, have a grand time that way. But don't put people at risk for no good reason. No, I I completely agree. And, you know, people say, oh, it's just another cold, just another flu. It is, it is, these numbers are all saying that it's more lethal than, significantly multiple times more lethal than your standard flu. So, Mm. you know, it's... It is deadly serious, and I, I hope they get a grip on it because you know a few weeks of Premier League football would be a small price to pay for for what might follow. And actually, mm. if it's not controlled at this stage, you know there won't be Euros, there won't be there won't be a lot of stuff. So, yeah, fingers crossed they can get a handle on it very uh, soon. Okay, we're going to have one last question here, right? Um, and it comes from boom, 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 boom. Uh, here it is, Simon Siebert. Who's that? Simon C. Siebert. And he mm. says, "Morning, guys. I don't think we've had any predictions from you for the last chunk of league games this season. Where do you think we will end up? So it's time to get out the predictatron and do our Premier League uh, predictions uh, between now and the end of the season. So I'm going to write them down and okay. keep track of them uh, as I always do. I definitely don't always lose." these so um are we just doing arsenal yeah we're just doing arsenal because it's not you know uh, there have been times where we've looked at the other teams there's too many teams and thought yeah you know we can judge our results based on them but i think for simplicity's sake we are going to do it just from a from an arsenal point of view that starts with wednesday night and it's uh, our, our man city against arsenal what is your prediction for that one I think Arsenal will lose that game because mm. if you didn't get that from what I said earlier. I also think Arsenal will lose that game. 
Okay. Okay, next up, we've got Brighton away. I think Arsenal will win that game. Okay, let me put the things in the right things here. I also think that we will win that game. We've a postponed game against Southampton away at St. Mary's. Um, It probably won't happen um, before some of the others, but uh, we've got that one. So that's an away game at Southampton. How do you see it going? I think they'll draw that game. I'm going to take a win for that one because um, I think somehow we're overdue some payback for the existence of Shane Long. So sure, that was the, the existence of Shane Long's the main factor of me going for a draw. Yeah, I imagine he'll <laughs> he'll somehow conjure a goal. Okay, Norwich um, at home. I think I've got to say Arsenal win there. Got to say an Arsenal win there. Okay, Wolves away. Yes, this is very interesting because <laughs> we've got we've got Wolves and Leicester right after each other, just as we did last season too. Well, and then Spurs. I mean, this little run will determine our league finishing position to a large extent. Oh. Um, That's all right. The pressure's off that. We don't have to beat them now. They lost a game. Um, Okay, Wolves away. It's not somewhere we conventionally do well, is it? I think a loss. Sorry. I'm going to go for a draw there. I'm going to go for a draw. We've got Leicester at home then. I think Arsenal will win that. Yeah, the wheels have kind of come off a bit for Leicester, haven't they? After the slightly, yeah. After Brendan Rodgers got a new contract. Hmm. Hmm. Do you think Arsenal will win? I think we're going to draw that one. I think yeah, this I was be torn a between bump. the two. North London derby at the new White Hart Lane against. I think Arsenal will win. Yeah, I'm going to go for a win there too. I just have a feeling I about think, that one. Yeah, same. It's got landmark Arteta win all over it, that one for mm, me. Liverpool at home. The game that we all looked at and thought we we're going to end their unbeaten run, but it's already been ended. Thank you, Watford. Uh, Liverpool should be champions by then. They will be champions by then, which is why I'm going for a draw from an Arsenal point. I'm going to go for a draw as well. I just think, you know, now they don't have the unbeaten thing to preserve. They'll be champions. Could still They'll be in Europe. Still be in, well, yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens with Atletico, but yeah, I think draw. Okay. Villa away. Ooh. The Jack Grealish... Um, what's the what's that thing you do? Memorial Trophy. No, 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 no. Uh, the audition. The Jack Grealish audition. Uh. Um, I think they're going to be right in the mix, aren't they? Going to be scrapping. I'm going to say a draw. I'm going for a win against Villa. I think Grealish will score twice, but Aubameyang will score a hat-trick, and Arsenal will win uh, that one. And on the final day of the season, are our cojones big enough to beat Watford? Possibly relegate Watford, seeing what happens. Uh, I think... I mean, some, it depends on if there's lots of play for. I think Arsenal will win on the final day. I also think so. So you have got... How many points have I got? You've got 3, 4, 7, 10, 13, 14, 15, 18. Okay. And I've got... possible how many? Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 30. Jesus, why did I count that? There's 10 games. Okay. So 18, 18 from, from 30. 30. And mm. I've got 
3, 6, 9, 10, 11, 14, 15. I've got 21 from 30. I mean, what I would say immediately off the bat is looking at those fixtures, I don't think it's an easy running. No. There are some tricky games in there. You know, that run of uh, Sheffield, what is it, sorry? Wolves, Leicester, Spurs, Liverpool. Mm. You know, that's juicy, isn't it? Yeah, I've got it. I've got us coming through that run unbeaten. I've obviously had like some good coffee this morning. I'm feeling good yeah. about <laughs> feeling good about my team, even though I just saw them play against West Ham. There's yeah, the yeah, eternal yeah, yeah. optimist in me. Well, they've got that performance out of the way now. They're flying now. Yeah, we're not losing games, really. You know, um, I say that ahead of a game no, against Man I City, mean, but like you know, we, we the are the only unbeaten team in the league in 2020, I yeah. believe. Calendar year champions, come on! Yes. We are um, the best. And, what, and so what do you reckon? So if you had 21 points, That would be 61 right? points. And you would have us on 58 points. So based on last season's Premier League... Um, I don't think either of those are going to be enough for Champions League, that's for sure. No, I don't think so. We would have to, we would have to go 30 for 30, I think, to get to the Champions <laughs> League places. Um, I mean, we finished on 70 points last season 58 we were, uh, we were fifth Man United sixth on 61 and Wolves seventh on 57 points it should be enough to get us Europa League football though yeah it, that's what it feels like mm. that's what it feels like but uh, we shall see maybe we'll beat Man City on Wednesday and all our expectations will be subverted mm. Right, well, look, um, let's see what happens then on Wednesday night. We will have another podcast later in the week. We're not quite sure yet what's going to happen, whether it's going to be an Arscast Extra or a late Arscast Extra or regular on Friday, but in an extra style we will have mm-hmm. to uh, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but join us for that, whatever it is. Uh, please, please, please wash your hands uh, as much as possible. Um, stay safe, stay well, and thanks for listening as always. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.